Part One D of August Comte and Positivism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. August Comte and Positivism, by John Stuart Mill. Part One D. There is little need for an elaborate refutation of a fallacy respecting which the only wonder is that it should impose on any one. Two answers may be given to it. In the first place, M. Comte might be referred to experience, and to the writings of his countryman M. Cardiac, and our own Sir William Hamilton, for proof that the mind can not only be conscious of, but attend to, more than one, and even a considerable number, of impressions at once. Footnote. According to Sir William Hamilton, as many as six, but numerical precision in such matters is out of the question, and it is probable that different minds have the power in different degrees. End footnote. It is true that attention is weakened by being divided, and this forms a special difficulty in psychological observation, as psychologists, Sir William Hamilton in particular, have fully recognized. But a difficulty is not an impossibility. Secondly, it might have occurred to M. Comte that a fact may be studied through the medium of memory, not at the very moment of our perceiving it, but the moment after and this is really the mode in which our best knowledge of our intellectual acts is generally acquired. We reflect on what we have been doing, when the act is past, but when its impression in the memory is still fresh. Unless in one of these ways we could not have acquired the knowledge which nobody denies us to have, of what passes in our minds. M. Comte would scarcely have affirmed that we are not aware of our own intellectual operations. We know of our observings and our reasonings, either at the very time, or by memory the moment after. In either case, by direct knowledge, and not, like things done by us in a state of somnambulism, merely by their results. This simple fact destroys the whole of M. Comte's argument. Whatever we are directly aware of, we can directly observe. And what organon for the study of the moral and intellectual functions does M. Comte offer? in lieu of the direct mental observation which he repudiates. We are almost ashamed to say that it is phrenology. Not indeed, he says, as a science formed, but as one still to be created. For he rejects almost all the special organs imagined by phrenologists, and accepts only their general division of the brain into the three regions of the propensities, the sentiments, and the intellect. Footnote or, as afterwards corrected by him, the appetites and emotions, the active capacities, and the intellectual faculties, le cœur, le caractère, and l'esprit, and the subdivision of the latter region between the organs of meditation and those of observation. Yet this mere first outline of an apportionment of the mental functions among different organs he regards as extricating the mental study of man from the metaphysical stage, and elevating it to the positive. The condition of mental science would be sad indeed if this were its best chance of being positive, for the later course of physiological observation and speculation has not tended to confirm, but to discredit, the phrenological hypothesis. And even if that hypothesis were true, psychological observation would still be necessary. For how is it possible to ascertain the correspondence between two things, by observation of only one of them? To establish a relation between mental functions and cerebral conformations requires not only a parallel system of observations applied to each, but, as M. Comte himself with some inconsistency acknowledges, an analysis of the mental faculties. 
des diverses facultés élémentaires three five seventy three conducted without any reference to the physical conditions since the proof of the theory would lie in the correspondence between the division of the brain into organs and that of the mind into faculties each shown by separate evidence to accomplish this analysis requires direct psychological study carried to a high pitch of perfection it being necessary among other things to investigate the degree in which mental character is created by circumstances since no one supposes that cerebral conformation does all and circumstances nothing the phrenological study of mind thus supposes as its necessary preparation the whole of the association psychology without then rejecting any aid which study of the brain and nerves can afford to psychology and it has afforded and will yet afford much we may affirm that m comte has done nothing for the constitution of the positive method of mental science he refused to profit by the very valuable commencements made by his predecessors especially by hartley brown and james mill if indeed any of those philosophers were known to him and left the psychological branch of the positive method as well as psychology itself to be put in their true position as a part of positive philosophy by successors who duly placed themselves at the twofold point of view of physiology and psychology mr bain and mr herbert spencer this great mistake is not a mere hiatus in m comte's system but the parent of serious errors in his attempt to create a social science he is indeed very skilful in estimating the effect of circumstances in moulding the general character of the human race were he not his historical theory could be of little worth but in appreciating the influence which circumstances exercise through psychological laws in producing diversities of character collective or individual he is sadly at fault after this summary view of m comte's conception of positive philosophy it remains to give some account of his more special and equally ambitious attempt to create the science of sociology or as he expresses it to elevate the study of social phenomena to the positive state he regarded all who profess any political opinions as hitherto divided between the adherents of the theological and those of the metaphysical mode of thought the former deducing all their doctrines from divine ordinances the latter from abstractions this assertion however cannot be intended in the same sense as when the terms are applied to the sciences of inorganic nature for it is impossible that acts evidently proceeding from the human will could be ascribed to the agency at least immediate of either divinities or abstractions no one ever regarded himself or his fellow-man as a mere piece of machinery worked by a god or as the abode of an entity which was the true author of what the man himself appeared to do true it was believed that the gods or god could move or change human wills as well as control their consequences and prayers were offered to them accordingly rather as able to overrule the spontaneous course of things than as at each instant carrying it on on the whole however the theological and metaphysical conceptions in their application to sociology had reference not to the production of phenomena but to the rule of duty and conduct in life it is this which was based either on a divine will or on abstract mental conceptions which by an illusion of the rational faculty were invested with objective validity on the one hand the established rules of morality were everywhere referred to a divine origin in the majority of countries the entire civil and criminal law was looked upon as revealed from above 
and it is to the petty military communities which escape this delusion that man is indebted for being now a progressive being the fundamental institutions of the state were almost everywhere believed to have been divinely established and to be still in a greater or less degree of divine authority the divine right of certain lines of kings to rule and even to rule absolutely was but lately the creed of the dominant party in most countries of europe while the divine right of popes and bishops to dictate men's beliefs and not respecting the invisible world alone is still striving though under considerable difficulties to rule mankind when these opinions began to be out of date a rival theory presented itself to take their place there were in truth many such theories and to some of them the term metaphysical in m comte's sense cannot justly be applied all theories in which the ultimate standard of institutions and rules of action was the happiness of mankind and observation and experience the guides and some such there have been in all periods of free speculation are entitled to the name positive whatever in other respects their imperfections may be but these were a small minority m comte was right in affirming that the prevailing schools of moral and political speculation when not theological have been metaphysical they affirmed that moral rules and even political institutions were not means to an end the general good but corollaries evolved from the conception of natural rights this was especially the case in all the countries in which the ideas of publicists were the offspring of the roman law the legislators of opinion on these subjects when not theologians were lawyers and the continental lawyers followed the roman jurists who followed the greek metaphysicians in acknowledging as the ultimate source of right and wrong in morals and consequently in institutions was the imaginary law of the imaginary being nature the first systematizers of morals in christian europe on any other than a purely theological basis the writers on international law reasoned wholly from these premises and transmitted them to a long line of successors this mode of thought reached its culmination in rousseau in whose hands it became as powerful an instrument for destroying the past as it was impotent for directing the future the complete victory which this philosophy gained in speculation over the old doctrines was temporarily followed by an equally complete practical triumph the french revolution when having had for the first time a full opportunity of developing its tendencies and showing what it could not do it failed so conspicuously as to determine a partial reaction to the doctrines of feudalism and catholicism between these and the political metaphysics metapolitics as coleridge called it of the revolution society has since oscillated raising up in the process a hybrid intermediate party termed conservative or the party of order which has no doctrines of its own but attempts to hold the scales even between the two others borrowing alternately the arguments of each to use as weapons against whichever of the two seems at the moment most likely to prevail such reduced to a very condensed form is m comte's version of the state of european opinion on politics and society an englishman's criticism would be that it describes well enough the general division of political opinion in france and the countries which follow her lead but not in england or the communities of english origin in all of which divine right died out with the jacobites and the law of nature and natural rights have never been favorites even with the extreme popular party who preferred to rest their claims on the historical traditions of their own country and on maxims drawn from its law-books and since they outgrew this standard 
almost always base them on general expediency. In England, the preference of one form of government to another seldom turns on anything but the practical consequences which it produces, or which are expected from it. M. Comte can point to little of the nature of metaphysics in English politics except la métaphysique constitutionnelle, a name he chooses to give to the conventional fiction by which the occupant of the throne is supposed to be the source from whence all power emanates, while nothing can be further from the belief or intention of anybody than that such should really be the case. Apart from this, which is a matter of forms and words, and has no connection with any belief except belief in the proprieties, the severest criticism can find nothing either worse or better in the modes of thinking either of our conservative or of our liberal party, than a particularly shallow and flimsy kind of positivism. The working classes, indeed, or some portion of them, perhaps still rest their claim to universal suffrage on abstract right, in addition to more substantial reasons, and thus far, and no farther, does metaphysics prevail in the region of English politics. But politics is not the entire art of social existence. Ethics is a still deeper and more vital part of it, and in that, as much in England as elsewhere, the current opinions are still divided between the theological mode of thought and the metaphysical. What is the whole doctrine of intuitive morality, which reigns supreme wherever the idolatry of Scripture texts has abated, and the influence of Bentham's philosophy has not reached, but the metaphysical state of ethical science? What else, indeed, is the whole a priori philosophy in morals, jurisprudence, psychology, logic, even physical science, for it does not always keep its hands off that, the oldest domain of observation and experiment? It has the universal diagnostic of the metaphysical mode of thought, in the Comtean sense of the word, that of erecting a mere creation of the mind into a test or norma of external truth, and presenting the abstract expression of the beliefs already entertained as the reason and evidence which justifies them. Of those who still adhere to the old opinions we need not speak, but when one of the most vigorous as well as boldest thinkers that English speculation has yet produced, full of the true scientific spirit, Mr. Herbert Spencer, places in the front of his philosophy the doctrine that the ultimate test of the truth of a proposition is the inconceivableness of its negative. When following in the steps of Mr. Spencer, an able expounder of positive philosophy like Mr. Lewes, in his meritorious and by no means superficial work on Aristotle, after laying very justly the blame of almost every error of the ancient thinkers on their neglecting to verify their opinions, announces that there are two kinds of verification, the real and the ideal, the ideal test of truth being that its negative is unthinkable, and by the application of that test judges that gravitation must be universal even in the stellar regions, because in the absence of proof to the contrary the idea of matter without gravity is unthinkable. When those from whom it was least to be expected thus set up acquired necessities of thought in the minds of one or two generations, as evidence of real necessities in the universe, we must admit that the metaphysical mode of thought still rules the higher philosophy, even in the department of inorganic nature, and far more in all that relates to man as a moral, intellectual, and social being. But, while M. Comte is so far in the right, we often, as already intimated, find him using the name metaphysical to denote certain practical conclusions, instead of a particular kind of theoretical premises. 
Whatever goes by the different names of the revolutionary, the radical, the democratic, the liberal, the free-thinking, the skeptical, or the negative and critical school or party in religion, politics, or philosophy, all passes with him under the designation of metaphysical, and whatever he has to say about it forms part of his description of the metaphysical school of social science. He passes in review, one after another, what he deems the leading doctrines of the revolutionary school of politics, and dismisses them all as mere instruments of attack upon the old social system, with no permanent validity as social truth. He assigns only this humble rank to the first of all the articles of the liberal creed, the absolute right of free examination, or the dogma of unlimited liberty of conscience. As far as this doctrine only means that opinions and their expression should be exempt from legal restraint, either in the form of prevention or of penalty, M. Comte is a firm adherent of it. But the moral right of every human being, however ill-prepared for the necessary instruction and discipline, to erect himself into a judge of the most intricate as well as the most important questions that can occupy the human intellect, he resolutely denies. There is no liberty of conscience, he said in an early work in astronomy, in physics, in chemistry, even in physiology, in the sense that every one would think it absurd not to accept, in confidence, the principles established in those sciences by the competent persons. If it is otherwise in politics, the reason is merely because, the old doctrines having gone by, and the new ones not being yet formed, there are not properly during the interval any established opinions. When first mankind outgrew the old doctrines, an appeal from doctors and teachers to the outside public was inevitable and indispensable, since without the toleration and encouragement of discussion and criticism from all quarters, it would have been impossible for any new doctrines to grow up. But in itself the practice of carrying the questions which more than all others require special knowledge and preparation, before the incompetent tribunal of common opinion, is, he contends, radically irrational, and will and ought to cease when once mankind have again made up their minds to a system of doctrine. The prolongation of this provisional state, producing an ever-increasing divergence of opinions, is already, according to him, extremely dangerous, since it is only when there is a tolerable unanimity respecting the rule of life that a real moral control can be established over the self-interest and passions of individuals. Besides which, when every man is encouraged to believe himself a competent judge of the most difficult social questions, he cannot be prevented from thinking himself competent also to the most important public duties, and the baneful competition for power and official functions spreads constantly downwards to a lower and lower grade of intelligence. In M. Comte's opinion, the peculiarly complicated nature of sociological studies, and the great amount of previous knowledge and intellectual discipline requisite for them, together with the serious consequences that may be produced by even temporary errors on such subjects, render it necessary in the case of ethics and politics, still more than of mathematics and physics, that whatever legal liberty may exist of questioning and discussing, the opinions of mankind should really be formed for them by an exceedingly small number of minds of the highest class trained to the task by the most thorough and laborious mental preparation, and that the questioning of their conclusions by any one, not of an equivalent grade of intellect and instruction, should be accounted equally presumptuous and more blamable than the attempts occasionally made by sciolists to refute the Newtonian astronomy. 
All this is in a sense true, but we confess our sympathy with those who feel towards it like the man in the story who, being asked whether he admitted that six and five make eleven, refused to give an answer until he knew what use was to be made of it. The doctrine is one of a class of truths which, unless completed by other truths, are so liable to perversion that we may fairly decline to take notice of them except in connection with some definite application. In justice to M. Comte, it should be said that he does not wish this intellectual dominion to be exercised over an ignorant people. Far from him is the thought of promoting the allegiance of the mass to scientific authority by withholding from them scientific knowledge. He holds it the duty of society to bestow on every one who grows up to manhood or womanhood as complete a course of instruction in every department of science, from mathematics to sociology, as can possibly be made general. And his ideas of what is possible in that respect are carried to a length to which few are prepared to follow him. There is something startling, though, when closely looked into, not utopian or chimerical, in the amount of positive knowledge of the most varied kind which he believes may, by good methods of teaching, be made the common inheritance of all persons with ordinary faculties who are born into the world, not the mere knowledge of results to which except for the practical arts he attaches only secondary value but knowledge also of the mode in which those results were attained, and the evidence on which they rest, so far as it can be known and understood by those who do not devote their lives to its study. We have stated thus fully M. Comte's opinion on the most fundamental doctrine of liberalism, because it is the clue to much of his general conception of politics. If his object had been only to exemplify by that doctrine the purely negative character of the principal liberal and revolutionary schools of thought, he need not have gone so far. It would have been enough to say that the mere liberty to hold and express any creed cannot itself be that creed. Every one is free to believe and publish that two and two make ten, but the important thing is to know that they make four. M. Comte has no difficulty in making out an equally strong case against the other principal tenets of what he calls the revolutionary school since all that they generally amount to is that something ought not to be, which cannot possibly be the whole truth, and which M. Comte in general will not admit to be even part of it. Take for instance the doctrine which denies to governments any initiative in social progress, restricting them to the function of preserving order, or in other words keeping the peace. An opinion which so far as grounded on so-called rights of the individual he justly regards as purely metaphysical, but does not recognize that it is also widely held as an inference from the laws of human nature and human affairs, and therefore, whether true or false, as a positive doctrine. Believing with M. Comte that there are no absolute truths in the political art, nor indeed any art whatever, we agree with him that the laissez-faire doctrine, stated without large qualifications, is both unpractical and unscientific. But it does not follow that those who assert it are not, nineteen times out of twenty, practically nearer the truth than those who deny it. The doctrine of equality meets no better fate at M. Comte's hands. He regards it as the erection into an absolute dogma of a mere protest against the inequalities which came down from the Middle Ages, and answer no legitimate end in modern society. He observes that mankind in a normal state having to act together are necessarily in practice organized and classed with some reference to their unequal aptitudes, natural or acquired, which demand that some should be under 
the direction of others. Scrupulous regard being at the same time bad to the fulfillment towards all of the claims rightfully inherent in the dignity of a human being, the aggregate of which, still very insufficiently appreciated, will constitute more and more the principle of universal morality as applied to daily use, a grand moral obligation, which has never been directly denied since the abolition of slavery. 4.51. There is not a word to be said against these doctrines, but the practical question is one which M. Comte never even entertains, viz., when, after being properly educated, people are left to find their places for themselves, do they not spontaneously class themselves in a manner much more conformable to their unequal or dissimilar aptitudes than governments or social institutions are likely to do it for them? The sovereignty of the people, again, that metaphysical axiom which in France and the rest of the continent has so long been the theoretic basis of radical and democratic politics, he regards as of a purely negative character, signifying the right of the people to rid themselves by insurrection of a social order that has become oppressive. But when erected into a positive principle of government, which condemns indefinitely all superiors to an arbitrary dependence upon the multitude of their inferiors, he considers it as a sort of transportation to peoples of the divine right so much reproached to kings. For on the doctrine as a metaphysical dogma or an absolute principle this criticism is just, but there is also a positive doctrine, without any pretension to being absolute, which claims the direct participation of the governed in their own government, not as a natural right, but as a means to important ends, under the conditions and with the limitations which those ends impose. The general result of M. Comte's criticism on the revolutionary philosophy is that he deems it not only incapable of aiding the necessary reorganization of society, but a serious impediment thereto, by setting up on all the great interests of mankind the mere negation of authority, direction, or organization, as the most perfect state, and the solution of all problems. The extreme point of this aberration being reached by Rousseau and his followers, when they extolled the savage state as an ideal from which civilization was only a degeneracy, more or less marked and complete. End of Part 1D Recording by Bill Borst